0: Well, hey there. Hope you're having a great summer. This summer on the King and Culture podcast with Seth being on sabbatical, we decided we wanted to do some best of episodes, introduce you or maybe reintroduce you to some episodes from the archives that we especially think are remaining relevant for our moment. So the first one that we're going to introduce you to is a little bit of a not just look back at a previous episode, but also a, a building off of the conversation that Seth had with Dr. John Del Hussey. And so this episode is going to be a... Replay of our sixth episode, which we called Marx, Freud, and the Mark of the Beast. And this is relevant not just because of uh, Revelation and the series that we have coming up, but because really every few years somebody starts making a big deal about what is the Mark of the Beast. The time that we recorded this was the end of 2020 as we were anticipating the vaccine becoming widely available. And we got a lot of questions at that time about to the degree to which the vaccine was perhaps a mark of the beast. And so this episode kind of comes at it from that framework but really every few years something comes along and especially as we study revelation this fall there's gonna be lots of speculation perhaps that people will be wondering about what is the mark of the beast so this is a helpful and uh, interesting episode hope you enjoy it i'm luke simmons and i'm seth trout and we are here to critique the hell out of culture All right, Seth, welcome back. Merry Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas Eve. Yes. Big plans today. Big plans. A lot going on. Uh, My guess is you probably won't be listening to this on Christmas Eve, but perhaps you're one of those folks that just as soon as it releases, you listen. Uh, But if not, uh, whenever you're uh, hearing this, we want to welcome you to the King and Culture Podcast. As we said, I'm Luke and that's Seth. And uh, yeah, our goal is to critique the hell out of culture. Seth, what are we talking about? Yeah, well,
1: we got to recognize that there's a lot of hellish things in our culture, and that's what we're trying to draw attention to is this reality that the spiritual forces are in play all the time. There's no neutral square inch that every inch is claimed by demonic forces and counterclaimed by Christ. And that's what we're trying to talk about is in this cultural moment that there are heavenly and hellish realities in play, and we want to draw attention to those things to expose the works of darkness.
0: So this isn't just like a... Grumpy guy podcast where we're just trying to gripe about stuff. Uh, We have both have a little bit of grumpy in us. um, That is true. But uh, that's not the goal. Uh, We really are just trying to help people think deeper and more biblically and more theologically, and especially the people of redemption. Gateway, but if you're new to us and just checking this out, we're uh, yeah, thanks for stopping by. This is really part three of a little mini series we've been doing on evaluating cultures. So the first time we talked about cult and cultures, how every culture has inherently religious dimensions. The idea of there being this kind of neutral public square just a myth. Uh, last time we looked at kind of a case study of Genesis and Exodus and really how how Moses critiqued the hell out of culture and how really these kind of three fundamental issues are always in play when you think about it. You know, three, three key questions that cultures are, are always asking. So remind us what those were, Seth.
1: Yeah. The big question is what does it mean to be human? And uh, what does it mean to be a human under God? So theology, anthropology, and then also the a, a central question is what is the task of humanity? We talked about how that both has to do with the family unit, male and female, and why sexual issues are so central to cultural critique the other piece has to do with subduing, have dominion, which is culture building, culture making, and our participation in society as a whole.
0: Yeah. So the first part of this mini series, we were kind of big picture. Last time was a little bit of a case study. Today, we're moving more into like right now, like how do we evaluate and think about this culture? And uh, man, this is kind of a fun place we're going to start is with the mark of the beast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is something that I've been hearing about more, I think, in light of the vaccine, right? There are people that are... Concern that perhaps the uh, coronavirus vaccine will have microchips in it, that if they did, that would be the mark of the beast. Um, I haven't actually heard any uh, fact about that that makes me think that that's true, that there will be microchips in the vaccine. Yeah. Um, Well, also just the reality,
1: even apart from that, is we all carry around tracking devices with us all day long that's being monitored and data is being uploaded constantly. Those are called smartphones. That's a pretty good point. And so we all kind of willfully carry around all the time things with microphones and cameras on them, microchips constantly. And so uh, the only difference between the vaccine so-called implantation microchip and our iPhones is uh, whether we're knowingly consenting to it or not. And how
0: much money we're spending to let them do that. Yeah.
1: So the question of uh, being tracked or whatever uh, is basically off the table. If you carry around a smartphone Or to use a cell phone in general.
0: So we're not talking really, though, about the vaccine. That's not the point of this. Uh, What we really want to start with is the mark of the beast. This is something that Christians seem to always be interested in. And as far as I can tell, almost always misunderstand. Yeah. And so hopefully we can provide some clarity to that. And I think that'll be a good entry point into our our current culture and how to evaluate that. So, Seth, what is the mark of the beast?
1: The first time I saw about the mark of the beast, uh, it was... Uh, in a Sunday school class back in my old church. And I remember folks were talking about barcodes and how the government was going to put barcodes on people mm. and scan them and kind of like turn them into cattle. Uh, the other side is like the Jewish side of me saw the Mark of the Beast in places like Auschwitz where people were assigned numbers. Mm. And that was like their their identity was reduced to a number that was tattooed onto them. So this idea of Marks of the Beast as tattoos was where I first kind of got grafted into that, but the idea comes from Revelation 13, at least that's where we first hear about it. Revelation 13, verses 16 and 17, it says, all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, are to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So the two aspects of that are, one, there's this um, being marked um, of the beast, um, and it's connected to the worship of the beast, we see that later in, the, in that chapter and in the next chapter but the the main thing that makes people concerned is that unless you get the mark, you cannot participate in the economy. You can't buy stuff. You can't sell stuff. And so your capacity to participate in society is limited on the basis of your willingness to get the mark or not get the mark.
0: So the mark of the beast is, that's a phrase just, just straight out of the Bible, straight out yeah. of Revelation 13. And you're saying it's this thing that at some point is going to exist and, or maybe it already has, or maybe it currently does that uh, basically will make it where you can participate in the society, in the economy, on the basis of whether you have it.
1: Yeah, and specifically, the mark of the beast is uh, the name of the beast or the number of his name. So well, there's a there's a naming, there's numbering. It's kind of more of like a branding. So it's not just some random mark, but it has something to do with identification. Yeah. Uh, so you're identifying with a cause or a person in the same way you may like I would wear a Steelers Jersey, right? There's a, mm-hmm. there's a logo. So it's kind of like you're being branded or you wear the logo of the beast is the idea. And you're going, I'm, I'm on this guy's team. Uh, so I'm team beast. I got the mark of the beast. And unless you get the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell stuff.
0: Yeah. So maybe if we talk about the mark of the beast, it's important to talk about the book of revelation and we can't do probably a whole study of the book of revelation. But one of the things that I think is really important as it comes to that book is a lot of times people think that it's some sort of code for the future that you've got to decipher. And if you could find kind of have the, the ring that would help you decipher it, you would find that this represents that, and this represents that, and this represents that. But the reality is that The book of Revelation is a kind of interesting combination just in terms of even literary genres, right? On one hand, it's a letter written to people in what would be modern-day Turkey, you know, Asia Minor. Um, It's a letter written to these churches. On the other hand, it's apocalyptic literature, um, and, and it's also a kind of prophecy, right? So it's kind of all of those things. And I think it's really interesting because a lot of times we don't have the familiarity with apocalyptic literature to be able to read that well, or if people get into apocalyptic literature, they kind of forget that it's a letter that was also written to encourage real Christians right then in the first century. Yeah, so e-
1: even along those lines, the genre of prophecy to us. We have like Harry Potterized that, you know, that there's like, you know, the magic stones that help you see into the future and predict it. And so we tend to think of prophecy as predictions, but more so biblical prophecy is two things. One, it is convicting preaching that is cutting people's sin. So prophetic preaching is saying, you forgot the covenant, get back on track. So that's, that'd be prophetic. The other aspect of prophecy is that it's a, um, is it is a promise, right? On the base of God's character, God is saying, this is what I will do. This is what will come to pass. So it's more of a promise than it's a prediction. Yeah. And I think it's important that we don't just think God is predicting the future because God's authored the future, and he's bringing it to its conclusion. So God is pro- making promises based on his character, calling the church to faithfulness. That is the genre of prophecy.
0: Well, and that's what the, the author John you know, is, is doing in the book itself, is calling people to be faithful. And what I found, I actually this past summer went through a course uh, one of my seminary professors kind of did an online Zoom course this summer on, on Revelation I went through it. it just found it so interesting and so relevant to this time because a lot of what we were kind of seeing in that in that class and what you see in the book of Revelation is that the themes that the first century church was dealing with as they were dealing with living in Rome in that culture and trying to be faithful to the Jesus in that culture all of those themes are still where we're at Yeah, right absolutely and yeah. there's kind of these um these archetypes of, of Babylon and the beast and Rome and all the powers and principalities that kind of go throughout any area of history. And so really revelation is not just this thing. That's like a code about the future, but it actually is supposed to give us insight in how to be faithful, how to be conquerors, how to stay true to Jesus in the midst of cultures that are pressing us on all sorts of different sides. Doesn't mean that there aren't actual predictions about the future but that isn't even necessarily the main point of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's what's crazy is when people try to interpret the book of Revelation, uh, they kind of go crazy. And G.K. Beale, who wrote the best commentary on the on the Greek in the book of Revelation, one of the things he says, which is really funny to me, whether it's funny or not, I don't know. But he says, John saw no monsters like who would become his future future interpreters meaning the the people who are trying to make sense of this book are becoming crazier than even the creatures that John saw in this (laughs) book of Revelation. Got it. Yeah, so you hear about these dragons with thousands of eyes, and it's like that's not as crazy as what people are doing to his (laughs) book, trying to interpret it and make sense of it. Likewise, Eugene Peterson, who I really respect and have a a ton of admiration for, one of the things he says is that because Revelation has more allusions or citations to the rest of the Bible than any other book, you basically cannot understand the book of Revelation until you've done tons of work— on the rest of the entire Bible, which basically means nobody should have a ton of strong opinions about the book of Revelation. He actually says that you have no business trying to make sense of Revelation until you've made sense of Deuteronomy in particular. Okay. And that's really the centerpiece of what I think it means for us to understand the book of Revelation. And, and especially the the mark of the beast. I want. To, I really want to go to Deuteronomy. And so one of the things you do in interpreting scripture is, especially the book of Revelation, is there's so many allusions which are like um, veiled references to other parts of the book. Is this mark of the beast idea? Is there's a marking on the forehead or on the hand? And one of the questions we want to ask is, are there other places in scripture where the forehead and the hand are marked? And the answer is yes. And it's actually... In what you could argue is the centerpiece of the entire Old Testament, which is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and following. So here's, it's called the Shema here, which uh, uh, in, in Hebrew, Shema means hear or listen. Um, and so here's the, here's the Shema, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These words I've commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So these people are, Um, On their forehead, putting the word of God, and on their hands, putting the word of God. Now, you might see Hasidic Jews, like in New York or other places, who literally have written God's word on, like, tapes and wrapped them Mm -hmm. around their hands, wrapped them around their arms, put them on their face, uh, trying to literally obey this text. But the heartbeat of this text is not do this thing with the written words, but it's to let all that you do, hands, be shaped by God's word, and, and let your lens for interpreting the world be shaped Like your eyes be shaped by God's world. So it's let your five senses be shaped by God's word.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of when I was in high school um, and I think these have come back in recent years, but when I was in high school, a big thing that Christians would do would be to wear these bracelets that said WWJD. Yeah. Right. And it was this way of going, okay, what would Jesus do? And you kind of felt like, okay, I'm marked by this bracelet. But the reality is me and lots of other people who had WWJD bracelets were doing lots of things that Jesus would not do, right? So just having the physical physical bracelet didn't really mark me as being a Jesus person nearly as much as if I actually did what Jesus did.
1: Yeah, WWJD, not that. (laughs) Not that. Yeah, Jesus doesn't ever you know, bind Deuteronomy on his face or on his hands, but he's actually fully marked by. It even comes back to the idea of baptism, that baptism was a word that was used oftentimes like in creating um, clothes is you would baptize the the cotton, cottonous textile in ink. And when it came out, it was marked. So it had been immersed, it had been baptized, it was changed. Status went from like pale cottonous to like purple. And you knew that something had been baptized based on, the way its color had changed, and so this is there's a marking involved, and so Christian baptism is similar, right? There's, it's not just the symbol, but it's the effect of the symbol, and so, if so we, in a
0: sense, we could kind of say that the, the mark of Jesus is that we're in, we're baptized in the Spirit, yeah. Right, that's the language of the New Testament is we're baptized into Christ, therefore we're baptized with the Spirit, therefore we're marked, we're sealed, we're guaranteed, we're filled, we're convicted, we're led by the Spirit of God. Um, You can't see the Spirit of God on me, right? Like if I walk in the room, unless God is doing some sort of unusual sign, you're not going to see the Spirit of God on me, but you might see the Spirit of God in and through me. uh, As you get to know me and spend time with me, you'd realize, oh, wow, that person is actually marked by the Spirit.
1: Yeah, so the the thrust of Deuteronomy 6 is... Uh, so it's the last book in the Pentateuch. This, Deuteronomy 6 is kind of the the summary covenant charter, the covenant document, saying here's exactly what's going on here. And he's saying, be shaped by my word. Do not be shaped by other things. There are other narratives. There are other myths. There are other stories. There are other ways of talking about this. And your, your worldview, that is like your eyes and your actions, your hands, must be shaped by my word, not by anything else. And so then when John gets to Revelation 13, you know, towards the end of the Bible, He's essentially reminding them, you know, you were supposed to be marked Mm. by Yahweh, the mark of God, marked by scripture on your hands and between your eyes. Do not, like people will come and tell you, be marked by the beast in order to participate in society. And so it is explicitly theological and moral. And I do think it's metaphorical, not necessarily literal. So when we think
0: about a mark of the beast, we shouldn't, be really mostly thinking about barcodes or microchips or, you know, an ID card or a kind of physical thing. Yes. As kind of the main idea, right. As though you could, um, so, so if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is, and I, I think this is true that if you're really marked by Christ, you can't be marked by the beast. Yes. Even if you had a beast ID card.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there may be, so I'm not saying it's less than the barcode or less than the beast ID card, but I'm saying that there is a doctrine. And by this, I mean front lines between your eyes or a practice in your hands that you must assent to and participate in, in order to be marked by the beast. Nobody will be accidentally marked by the beast. What will happen is you will confess a doctrine or a position or renounce Christ in order to say, I do not want to follow Jesus. I want to follow the new regime or the new world order, or the new technocratic um, thing I have to confess.
0: That's a, that's a key idea, even different, a little bit from what I said, because you, you emphasize the word accidentally, right? So in that sense, if, if you had to confess a certain belief and a certain view of the world in order to get your beast ID card, yeah, <laughs> real Christians wouldn't have that. Yeah. So do but you, it's not like you're going to just, you know, it's not like they're going to put a new hologram on my Arizona you know driver's yeah. license and oops i accidentally yeah i got the like last on the last, the on the last the day
1: you stand before god in judgment and he's like oops turns out you got the mark of the beast and you're like
0: "Oh, dang it <laughs> i had no idea
1: where was it oh it was actually the nike symbol to you know right. gotcha you know and yeah. so i do think that there uh, the way that we think about this mark of the beast thing we have to think about it doctrinally and morally not just physically um, or technologically. However, technology does make it more possible. So I just want to be sure. like very clear. There may be a situation where uh, the government goes, hey, we want to be in a, ta- in a cashless society. Therefore, we have to use Apple Pay or Android Pay all the time because we don't want to handle or exchange cash. And so we're going go to this cashless society. Uh, and so, or if you want to, you could get an uh, a chip implanted in the tip of your finger, which you know links to your bank account and you can do that thing. That technology already exists. It's already out there. It's already possible. I use Apple pay all the time. Uh, Cause it's just easier and faster. And I don't have to carry around cards as much when that would become a mark of the beast. However, is if they said, Hey, we have this cashless society and in order, you know, now you Luke Simmons, uh, because we are only using these chips. Now we've written down the number to your chip. And unless you sign this doctrinal statement that says you'll do gay weddings your microchip is turned off and you can't buy stuff. So you'd have to then willfully renounce allegiance to Christ and announce allegiance to the new regime who's shaping your, you have to put on different frontlets. You have okay. to put on a new thing that's shaping your heart, mind, and soul. And so in this sense, I do think that historically from, gen- from um, the first century on, there probably have been um, multiple examples of marks of the beast.
0: Yeah, so I was just going to ask you, is is there is there the mark of the beast? Like there's only one, or are there multiple? Or are there kind of like uh, the mark of the beast in seed form that just kind of appears differently in different generations?
1: Yeah, so I think John says this in a different book. Um, I'm looking up this reference right now because I forgot it. But he says in 1 John 2.18, he says... Um, Many of you ask him about the Antichrist, and he says many Antichrists have come. So these Antichrists, or these false Messiahs, or these false worldviews, or these false idol, like Id- idolatrous um, ideologies, that are meant to shape our heart, mind, and soul. And so John's saying, be on the look for Antichrists, not necessarily just waiting the single Antichrist, which I do think that is a thing. And I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah. Um, but anyway,
0: so yeah, we we should always be kind of on the lookout for anything that's out of line with. Jesus. Yeah. Um, not just so we can kind of lob bombs at it, but so that we can avoid embracing it with our hearts and our minds and our souls and yeah. our strength, the things that we're supposed to love Jesus with. Yeah. So
1: so here's the key. is So in the early persecution of the church in the second and third century, uh, Christians were not killed for being Christians. That's not what happened. Most of the time they were killed for what was called obstinacy, mm-hmm. which is refusal to worship Caesar.
0: Yeah, we have no God, but Caesar is what people wanted them to say.
1: Yeah, they well, they wanted them to be um, syncretistic. I mean, they want to say yes, have Jesus. That's fine. Uh, Roman society was tolerant in that regard. They tolerated all these other views, but Christians refusing to be marked by allegiance to Caesar. So that it was Christians refusing to take the mark of the beast, which in the first century was Nero. You know, like the Great Persecution of Nero, refusing to bend the knee to, C- to Nero to call him God to call him. Um, the leader, to allow his philosophy to shape their worldview. So it's actually obstinacy. So the Romans saw Christians as basically just stubborn and annoying, saying, if you would just participate in the cult of Caesar, then you could also just do whatever you want Sunday morning.
0: Yeah, if you kind of went, you know, some of life is all for Jesus. Yes. And we, we'd like the other part. Yeah, do whatever you want Sunday morning. We don't really care. Yeah. Do whatever you want Sunday morning. But But Christians saying, okay, all of life is all for Jesus. Yeah. I'm... Fully loyal to Jesus. There's one thing you can't say.
1: You cannot say Caesar is not Lord. And you have to regularly confess Caesar's Lord Monday through Friday if you want to participate in the means of production Hmm. uh, and consumption here in society. And so I do think that... So that was a
0: a mark of the beast. Yeah, I think a mark
1: of the beast. To be marked by allegiance to Caesar... uh, would have been considered a mark of the beast. And in particular, again, it's not like, I don't think everyone got like Caesar logos tattooed on them, but there was this, uh, an allegiance to Caesar's Lord that Christians refused to participate in and they were murdered for it. Hmm. And so it was, we got to think about like obstinacy, stubbornness, being annoying on the wrong side of history. These are all things that were basically talked about in the early Christian persecution.
0: Hmm. So, um, I don't know if you have other examples you want to highlight through history, but that makes me just think of even now to go, okay, if there were a mark of the beast now, what might it be? And and even as we think about this, we go, okay, well, if a mark of the beast is an ideology and a belief and a, an affirmation of some ungodly thing, well, there could be lots of marks of the beast even now in one moment. But as you think about where we are at this point in history, if there was a mark of the beast right now for us in the West, uh, what do you think it might be?
1: So if it was a logo, I think it'd be a blue square with two yellow lines on it. Think about that. So that's the HRC campaign logo.
0: HRC. Human rights, Human campaign. rights campaign. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which I know is hardly a peacemaking thing to say. I think that's what it'd be, because I think that what that stands for is there is a doctrine, an ideology, a you must accept where this is headed, or you're on the wrong side of history, or you'll be canceled. You'll be dragged into the public square and metaphorically crucified if it's found out that you even would never put a human rights campaign logo on your car. And this goes back to even six years ago. So things have escalated. But you had like the CEO of Mozilla, Mozilla, who gave money to California Prop 8, which was a defense of marriage, male female marriage thing. And so privately donated, wasn't like a public thing, but his tax records were uncovered. They found out he gave money to Prop 8 and they demanded his resignation. So his ability to keep his job was predicated on his refusal to um, be marked by the new doctrine which erases the biblical vision for humanity. Mm. Wow. And so I could see a situation in the near coming future where Christians have to consent to an ungodly vision for what it means to be human and to say humans decide for themselves who they are. God does not decide who we are. You have to consent to a uh, keeping God out of my public sphere. So even right now, you have a lot of politicians talking about not the um, the freedom of religion, but the freedom of worship, which means they're trying to relegate religion to
0: the Sunday morning sphere. And um, worship however you want, but yeah, we want your religion. Yeah, we want we're your not, life. We, we are
1: not persecuting you. You can do whatever you want on Sunday morning, but when you come into the public square, you must... S- sign allegiance to and pledge allegiance to this new doctrine of LGBTQ gender ideology. And if you don't, then you are committing an act of violence by erasing us. And it's, uh, your, your, you, your very presence is making this a non-safe space. So we have to remove you from this present from this place so we can create a safe space for people who don't agree with you.
0: So, um, as you've said, there's there's maybe multiple of these kinds of doctrines that would need to be affirmed or kind of thought processes. And so this first one that, that you're bringing up here really seems like it has a lot to do with sexuality. Yeah. And um, that, didn't, you know, that didn't just start six years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back. And
1: this is one of the key questions for us as Christians to ask is not what's wrong. That's pretty easy. But the question is like, how do we get here? Because hmm. I do feel like history has power. And by that, I mean... Understanding the journey and trying to get back to the roots of how we got here um, help take away some of the beliefs. And even in talking to folks who are swept up, who are who have given themselves to Caesar, like this is evangelism. It's not evangelism is not just Jesus is Lord, but it's also Caesar is not Lord. If we're trying to liberate people from the oppression of Caesar and bring them up under Jesus, which is evangelism, it's really helpful for us to be able to understand Caesar's promises and ideology, so we can help dismantle it and help bring them. Um, to Jesus and help them see that Jesus is not just true, but he's also better. Like yeah. it's not, it's yeah. not just a, a truth quest, but it's also like there's sure. more joy in Jesus than there is in serving Caesar. And so uh, I want to go all the way back to yes. Freud.
0: So that that's really important. I, I just want to pause there to go. This is not so we can just sort of sit back at a distance and lob grenades at a culture that's embracing these things. It's so that we can actually engage in relationships and understand where people are at and what might be driving them. And so we can love them and lovingly challenge them to actually turn from what will not bring life to what will. Yes, absolutely.
1: Any culture critique that's not bound up in both the holiness of the church and its mission to bring people to Jesus and make disciples is just grumpy old guyism. Yeah. Right. Back in my day is get off my lawn. Yeah. And I I really want to say like we want to understand this stuff so that we can evangelize our neighbors and help them meet Jesus more effectively, not just so that we can, you know, be, um, smug social conservatives. That's not the point, right? right? The point is trying to, um, preserve the holiness of the church and reach people for Jesus. And so going back a long ways, we have to understand that, um, this idea of like sexuality is at the centerpiece of our identity is a pretty new thing in world history. There has been sexual deviancy forever. There has been, Uh, The rejection or the questioning of male, female, monogamy, one man, one, one, one woman, that's always
0: existed. Yeah, last time we looked at Genesis 1 and saw that Moses was critiquing that even back then.
1: Yeah, but recognizing how do we get to the point where my sexuality, my sexual preferences, my sexual inclinations are the centerpiece of who I am. And for you to deny me sexual gratification on my terms is oppression and violence and Erasure. How do we get there? And to do that, we have to go back all the way to Freud. Freud was really the first thinker who um, conceptualized what it means to be human purely in terms of sexual gratification. He saw the developmental process is sexual from breastfeeding to potty training to puberty. All of that is explicitly sexual. And he actually sexualized children to the point of looking back on young children's experience and like basically sexualized the entire developmental process leaving nothing else to to the forces of nature besides this whole thing. And even like the reason he said that people are even willing to participate in society is because they're like waiting for the hope of sexual gratification. That's why people even participate in sex. So all of us are just these sexually repressed, frustrated people.
0: That's quite a reduction.
1: It's super of our humanity
0: to go. You are nothing but your sexual desires and experiences and et cetera.
1: And so he's the father of psychoanalysis. But even though most therapists and psychologists now basically think he's ridiculous, it was actually like he kind of planted the seed on humans are their sexuality and their sexuality and not just like happiness, but sexual gratification is the centerpiece of what it means to be human and to live a fulfilling life. And so if you are not sexually gratified, you are not happy period. And if you're not pursuing sexual gratification, then you are denying your humanity. And so Freud really planted that seed. And that's a seed that has really bloomed in full swing the last handful of years in the American public conscience.
0: Well, I would want to just sort of pause there and go, okay, because I think what you just said is if you're not pursuing your sexual gratification, you're not fully human, you can't be happy. Then what you would be saying at that point is that Jesus of Nazareth was not really human and yeah. wasn't really happy. Yeah, right? Because Jesus wasn't on a quest to fulfill his sexual preferences. He he wasn't worried about that. He wasn't married, he wasn't sexually active. He and and oh my goodness, we would go, "Well, he was actually the most human, most holy, most joyful, most happy. Um he was everything that we would hope to be. He's the perfect person." Amen. And so that's a really different story.
1: Yeah, and so Freud sexualizes everything. And he, at the same time, he reduces the purpose and goal of life and makes it all out to be this struggle for sexual gratification. And this, this kind of thinking really shaped the entire consciousness of the West as it relates to what it means to be human. What it also does is it... Um, takes away this idea of like investing in or building in uh, the future of humanity. Cause now that the goal and purpose of humanity is not loving your neighbor, but it's quote unquote living in the moment mm. because sexual gratification can only be an in the moment thing. So unless you're living in like this constant orgy, mm. all you have is moments of gratification and moments of d- disappointment.
0: And so, well, and it's interesting how um, when you, Just actually think about real life. How many of one moment's, one person's moment of gratification is another person's moment of not just disappointment, but trauma, Mm. uh, pain, sorrow, heartbreak. Um, Yeah. I mean, that just, that leads to just brokenness everywhere.
1: Oh, yeah. The dehumanizing force of this sexual reduction of identity is astronomical. And you can just look at the destruction that these, uh, that these marks, this mark of the beast, which I would say one mark of the beast is you are your sexual desires. I am my sexual desires. And to be human, I must act in my sexual desires. Hmm. That's a mark of the beast. And so confess that or don't participate in society hmm. is, is uh, I think the, the heart of Freud, this idea of sex as identity. The next big piece that I think we see coming on has to do with like Marx, Karl Marx. He's everywhere now. Nobody's read him. Everyone thinks they know what he's talking about. <laughs> but the big idea in the big idea in Marx is there are those who control the means of our production and participate in receiving the benefits of the means of production. So this is so Marx reduces everything to economics. Right, everything is about economic means, mm-hmm. and there are um, owners and there are employees, you know, or the working class, and so he's reducing everything to our capacity to participate in the means of production. And so this is one of the ideas that if uh, this is kind of not really shaped Western conscience yet, but it's shaping it yeah. in a way where you have to demonize uh, people who have things, right? Uh, Cause if you don't demonize people who have things, then you're um, not making space for the have nots to have access to this. Mm-hmm. And even terms up happening in Marx, is you say that your whole identity, what it means to be human To be fully human, you must participate in the means of production or you must participate in the economic process. And this is the reason why things like abortion and even certain brands of feminism have gained so much steam. It's this idea that men, by virtue of their biology, are more fit and able to participate in means of production, whereas women get pregnant and have to take time away from participating in the means of production. Therefore, women are less human than men. Therefore, we must make them like men, which means they can't have babies. So Hmm. the entire process of like the abortion machine, as it relates to even um, reproductive rights, has to do with a Marxist vision for participation in the economic process. Hmm. And so there's literally a, we must turn women into men as it relates to the means of production. Otherwise they are oppressed. And so it erases the whole vision for the family, for motherhood, for fatherhood. And it also reduces men that it's, it's saying, you know, if men are off at work, that's the most important thing they do. So it reduces men's identity to their occupation or vocation or their, their productive capacity and reduces women to their ability to become like men and to not have
0: babies. And so you see that um, growing in influence now that that could be in our day or in coming days, potentially another one of these kind of, Marks of the Beast.
1: Yeah, the whole idea of like the family system, monogamy, male, female, husband, wife, together, having kids, raising them, is considered an oppressive institution by many of the far left in our current cultural moment. And it's oppressive precisely because it inhibits both of their ability to be perpetually sexually gratified and it inhibits the woman's capacity to participate in the means of production or the husband's means of production if he if he stays at home. Either way, they're they're both being oppressed sexually and economically by marriage. Hmm. And so, what ends up happening is you see Freud and Marx each kind of grab onto. I'm being very summative here. So, <laughs> if any of you are Freud or Marxist scholars, give me grace. You're simplifying. I'm simplifying. Yeah. yeah. Freud wants to reduce what it means to be human. To fruitful and multiply, Marx wants to reduce what it means to be human to subdue and have dominion. Hmm. So the two cultural um, commands we see in Genesis one, to be fruitful and multiply, which is has to do with procreation, family building, um, you know, progeny, reproduction, yeah. um, the two becoming one. So there's there sexual gratification in there, but that's not as a mean. That's not the end. Right. Right. Sexual gratification is actually the means, the end is children. So the identity is not wrapped up in the gratification, but it's wrapped up in the production and the subdue and have dominion is the culture building. We talked about that yeah. um, a number of these episodes. And so it's interesting how Freud and Marx each hate the nuclear family because uh, they see the nuclear family as either repressing your sexual needs or as inhibiting your ability to participate in the means of production. So they both end up being these anti-children anti-family dogmas that really want to see the family unit erased and wiped away.
0: Yeah, that's so, uh, it's interesting to see that history and to see um, just the contrast that it is between the biblical vision. And the word that you kept using over and over there was reduce, reduce, reduce. Yeah, And it feels like all of these isms, they reduce, you know. um, And even, I think even as Christians, there's times when we sort of In order to try to be simple or to try to be clear, we we overly reduce things. We can reduce the gospel. Um, We can reduce the vision of humanity to being just one little thing. And man, when you read the Bible, it is very, it's textured and it's big and it's vast and it's beautiful and it's got scope. There's a kind of epic vision to uh, humanity and to life in God's world that really does just kind of shrivel up a bit if you reduce it in these ways.
1: Oh yeah. And so in context, then going back to Deuteronomy six, right? um, Let my word be on your mind and on your hands. Let my word shape your worldview and let my world shape what you do. That Moses has in mind Genesis one there, you know, this, Hmm. going back to this, uh, this kind of dual reality of cultures has to do with participating in society, building um, civilization. It also has to do with, like the, the family unit, which the family unit ultimately um, is superseded by like one local nuclear family household in like the Western economic sense and becomes the church family, a participation and making disciples and, and um, raising up children in that way. So it's not like people who can't reproduce don't get to participate, but in the family of God, there's these, you know, kind of takes a village situation going mm-hmm. on in the New Testament. But Moses is exhorting, Israel saying, don't be shaped by the economic machinery of Egypt any longer, where the goal is build the pyramids by any means necessary, right? But this this full image of God um, raising up children up in the way of the Lord, teaching them not to be like the idolatrous nations, and participating in good economic... Creation of goods and services. These are part of what it means to be good. And so Moses is warning these people, like, hey, remember who you are, remember why you're here, remember women that we're doing this all in the glory of the Lord. And Revelation thirteen is an echo back into that. So really we can't read Revelation thirteen without reading Genesis one and Deuteronomy six. Huh. So this is like a whole Bible view of Revelation thirteen. Yeah. Which is be committed to the ways of the Lord and watch out when you are by a idolatrous society, a Babylon, if you will, are forced to confess certain doctrines of what it means to be human or what the purpose and goal of life is to participate in in civil life in the buy and sell and when that type of thing starts happening then we need to really start talking about which marks of the beast and so today we talked about two kind of the Freudian sexual gratification and Marxist participation in on the means of production and there's other ones out there but those two those two feel like
0: be reductionistic to say those are the only two yeah, right. but there's other idols. There's other marks of the beast. There's other things that show allegiance to Babylon and to the powers of the world.
1: Yeah, but that that whole idea of like even just the technological um, humans manipulating the sexual reproductive process, you can't have uh, you know a certain politicians saying you know trans rights are the the civil rights issue of our day. That that statement right there, trans rights are the civil rights issue of our day, is loaded with the Freudian and Marxist energy, mm. right? That these people must be able to gratify their sexuality and be who they are and um, identify as who they are um, because God's not a part of the public square and the public square is where people participate in means of production. And so if you deny their identity, they can't participate in the means of production. Therefore they are erased and therefore you're doing violence to them. And so we have to recognize the the cultural um, winds that are blowing mm. when these kind of simple catchphrases get thrown out there. And the big thing for us at redemption gateway of Christians in general is I just want us to recognize, one, don't be afraid. You're not going to accidentally get some Mark of the Beast, (laughs) and God's going to say on the last day, whoops, too bad. Yeah. But two, to recognize that there is always an ongoing threat that if we don't bend the knee to the cultural doctrines or practices, that we will be eliminated from society. Hmm. And we just have to recognize that that may be coming, and we have to see, like, can we gird up our loins? Do we have the big boy pants to deal with that when it comes? Yeah. Is, is our spine in Christ strong enough to withstand um, the spirit of the age calling us to submit and we say no? Uh, so that's that's a big kind of heartfelt question for us is not just to be mad at um, certain voices in culture, but in our own hearts to say, am I ready? You know, when, when asked sure. to bear the mark of Christ and not the mark of a beast.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, it's ultimately about loyalty to Jesus, right? And so today, you know, we've pretty strongly critiqued a few of the idols that are more idols of the left. Um, though I think you could even say that, you know, conservatives have been pretty swept up in the sexual revolution in lots of other different ways. But whether it's a whether it's an ideology from the left or from the right, anything that is reducing humanity um, is not the way we want to live. We want to live uh, faithful to the King in the midst of this culture. So that's maybe a good place to land. Seth, any kind of last thoughts? Nope, this is fun. Yeah, this was. This is uh, cool for you to get to, you know, use these muscles. You're working on your dissertation and it reading is, a yeah. lot about this stuff. Thanks for blessing us with your insights. So,
1: Yeah, I do see it as remarkably necessary for evangelism. I do not want to just be out here critiquing culture for the heck of it. But I do see that Uh, this is one of the things a guy um, that I respect I think his name is Ryan Anderson so I don't respect him that much I'm not sure what his name is (laughs) but he he talked about how the people who are being like swept up in these ideologies we need to have tremendous compassion for them because they are trying to make it sure they feel terrible they're depressed they're anxious they're trying to make sense of their world apart from Christ and that is suffering but at the same time, we should have a heart of anger to the activists who are trying to destroy mm. what God has established, yeah. and resist it with force. Mm. I, and by by force, I mean almost exclusively through prayer. Like, <laughs> like right. I mean, I mean, like the Spirit of Christ uh, against the Spirit of the age. Mm. Right? We wrestle not against flesh. We blood. resist it forcefully,
0: not not violently.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and this real kind of like. Refusal to live by lies is, is part of the deal. Yeah. Um, but if we really want to reach the next generation, Generation Z in particular, they are, gonna, they are already and are going to be the most sexually confused generation. So the ability to speak thoughtfully and compassionately mm. to Gen Z about why all of a sudden in this moment your identity is reduced to how you identify with your genitals or not, Mm. and what you want to do with them or not mm. is just, it's like reducing humans to animals. Like mm. we're, we're no longer doing anthropology, we're doing zoology. Mm. We're talking about how we're like the chimpanzees who like the goal is just food and sex. Mm. And that's just at a minimum lame. <laughs> yeah. But that's...
0: Yeah, Jesus came to just give so much more.
1: Yeah, life and life to the full. The abundant life is in Christ. And the abundant life is is not an orgy. Abundant life is not an orgy identifying yourself um, outside of your body in a different way and and we need to have this uh, this stuff know it so that we can speak the language of our culture so that we can help them see Jesus as better
0: yeah it's a great word So thanks for stopping by if you know anyone that would benefit from this be sure to share it with them um, If you have ideas or questions or things that you would like us to kind of dive into as we try to lovingly critique the hell out of culture uh, just email us Luke Simmons at RedemptionAZ.com or Seth Trout. That's uh, two T's at the end. Seth Trout at redemptionaz.com. We'd love to get any feedback or uh, answer any things that we can. So uh, with that, we'll sign off and uh, see you next time. Merry Christmas.